Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And we are presented by Ragnar Relays. Don't you want to go out? exercise hard, be with friends, seek enlightenment, fame and fortune. Well, I don't know what those last two things, but maybe maybe the third one. But you can definitely have fun with your friends and exercise like crazy and have a blast. If you do a Ragnar Relay, they have road courses, they have trail courses. They are just so much fun and adventurous. And I can't wait to do one. I'm so jealous of everyone who gets to do one. And if you go to runragnar.com, and use code RAMBLING19, you and your team can save $80. That's right, $80. Thank you, Ragnar, for hooking that up. So visit runragnar.com today. So this episode is with someone who is just providing such a resource for the running community that it just is truly extraordinary. Her name is Allison Wade. And what Allison Wade is doing is that she is creating the Fast Women newsletter that comes out every Monday morning, or as I should say, this morning, because I'm recording this on Monday night. And this newsletter encapsulates everything that's happening in a week-to-week basis in American women running, especially at the highest level. And it really is such a valuable piece of content coming from somebody who is so well-versed in the sport not only from an athletic perspective, but from a coaching perspective and a communications and media perspective. She has the total package and it's so evident. And what she's doing is just furthering the sport for so many people in terms of, you know, and this is what we talk about a little bit in this episode, is that people who love running don't necessarily consume content about running. Right, You're not going to find many basketball fans who don't watch basketball actively or don't read about you know, the pros or college basketball all the time. Same thing with, say, football or baseball or other sports. However, running, either for men or for women, just isn't consumed that way by the vast majority of the people who do it, even people who do it seriously and run every day and have goals in running. And I think that one of the resources that, that – that she puts out there, or say the resource that she puts out there in this, you know, in the shape of this newsletter is something that can really tie the amateur runner into what's happening with, you know, the, the professional running and semi-professional running scene. In fact, there's plenty of pros who love this newsletter as well. There's a link to it in the show notes. You're going to love it if you don't already subscribe to it. Granted, I am not a woman. I am not, you know, a woman runner, nor am I fast. So you would think that just the name of this newsletter, the Fast Women Newsletter, would not necessarily pertain to me, but I absolutely love it. I just get to learn so much more about the sport and all of the people within it. And I just thank Allison, not only for producing it, but for coming on the show, talking about it, and diving into her own running and professional background to kind of put a face and some context to this wonderful wonderful service that she is providing. So with that being said, also, hey, if you love this newsletter, if you've already listened, you've already you know, read it, and after you listen to this, you want to read it, go v- visit her on her Patreon page as well. Go support the cause because she's putting in a lot of hard work, and you're going to be better for it. And that link is also in the show notes. So without further ado, here is my episode with Allison Wade. Hello, Allison, and welcome to the Rambling Runner podcast. Thanks for having me. It's my pleasure. I was really excited to have you on the show. And in our correspondence, before, you know, we were kind of trying, trying to find a date and time to set up the call. I loved one of the lines that you, that you said to me. You're like, all right, you know, we can do nighttime. And I was like, all right, well, we should do it probably after your kids go to bed. And you, you responded with, well, I probably go to bed before my kids at this point. So, so how old, yeah. how old are your kids? They're eight, but uh, they, 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 they can sleep pretty late in the morning, but they don't go to bed so early. They lie in bed awake for a long time. Oh my gosh. All right. So are they, are they twins? Yeah, they are. Oh my goodness. How wild. So that was, so when is school starting for them? Um, a week from tomorrow. So eight days. Yeah. Okay. You, you, you counting down the days at this point is summer. Yes. Is summer dragging yes, at this point? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> 
Oh, I can imagine. Yeah, my daughter is seven. And um, it's funny that she my kids have always been really good sleepers. But yeah, the, uh, you know, the, the chatter in the bedroom can be especially if you're not used to it at first can like really set you off because you want to go in there and be like, it's time to go to sleep. But you know, the more you go in there, the more they're going to just continue to talk. Exactly. So let's dive into it. You are the author behind basically one of the one of the highlights of my week every Monday morning getting the fast women news fast women newsletter in my mailbox this thing has really taken off so i can't wait to talk to you about that let's just dive into the history behind it um when did you start writing about running oh boy um i think i started writing about running about nearly 20 years ago which is crazy um but it's been sort of an off and on thing throughout time. And it hasn't always been writing. Sometimes it's been like for a while, I was more of a photographer. And um, yeah, but it's I've I've been into running for as long as I've like following the elite side of things for as long as I've been a runner. And when you first started following the elites as a runner, what first drew you into following um, what they were up to? Because with running, it's, it's not like every other sport, right? Like if, you, if someone plays basketball or, you know, or soccer or whatever, like usually they, they they keep in touch with what's happening at the elite level. I feel like in running, that's not necessarily the case. Yeah. And I, I agree that it's not necessarily the case, but I also have always thought like, why not? Um, I think growing up the you know, the, the sports that co- get covered the most tend to be men's sports. And those didn't really interest me at all because I didn't see myself in that at all. Um, but I think the reason I was so into runners right from the beginning is because I came from gymnastics where it might have been a little bit more normal to sort of follow the the top athletes. And um, I mean, I was like a totally like crazy gymnastics fan to the point of like being pen pals with, you know, like famous, famous gymnasts and stuff. And so I think when I moved over to running, I just assumed that that was how you did it. Like you, you read every magazine about the sport and you, you know, communicated with the, the top runners. Oh my goodness. All right. So we need to, we need to just take a step back here. Who were you pen pals with? <laughs> in gymnastics or in running? In, in gymnastics. <laughs> um, well, actually, like when I was in I don't, I mean, there was, there were names that like, you wouldn't really know now, like Phoebe Mills and stuff like that. But, um, cause it was so long ago, but, um, when I was in seventh grade, I actually started taking Russian classes cause I wanted to be able to inst- like, we had, we had to pick a language and I picked Russian cause I wanted to be able to communicate with the Russian gymnasts. And eventually I achieved my goal of um, becoming pen pals with Svetlana Boganskaya, who was like the world champion at the time. Holy um, cow. So- <laughs> I was a little bit, you know, of an odd child, I think. <laughs> so how does one, you know, obviously, once you start learning Russian, which is obviously a huge thing, we're talking about time commitment um, and just be able to, like, go to a school system that even taught that. It's amazing. But with that being said, how does one even become pen pals with an elite athlete? That is just like, I don't know anyone who's ever you know, experienced that. Yeah, I don't even remember how we found them, but I think it was sort of like you sent mail care of the gym. And I think sometimes the um, the magazines would prov- like publish addresses. So I think it was a little bit more encouraged in gymnastics. When I did it in running, I think I was very strange. And like, I don't know, I, I remember there were a couple of people who um, I, w- I mean, I was pen pals with a whole bunch of people in in running and like some of them never really made it as runners. And I mean, like as elite level runners, but like I was pen pals with Dina Castor for a little while when she was in college and um, Amy Yoder Bagley, who became an Olympian as well. It's kind of embarrassing. I think it's fantastic. <laughs> and definitely like, you know, talk about like foreshadowing things to come on your end. It really, yeah. like, really dovetails nicely with what you do, what you've done later. So when you were deciding, you know, when you go through this process when you were a younger kid, when you were looking at, you know, these athletes who you looked up to, were there certain characteristics in either running or gymnastics that you were attracted to in terms of following and wanting to communicate with them? Um, I'm not really sure. I mean, I think at the time, like we just had so little information about everybody that I didn't really care who, like, I didn't really know anything about them. I just thought, oh, wow, they're fast. Like, that's cool. Um, I want to learn more. And 
Um, at, because back then it was all, when I started running, it was all magazines um, that, where you got your information. There really was no internet. Um, so I don't know. I think I would have loved social media because it would have been a lot easier to get all that information. That's for sure. It probably would have been harder too than to like become actual pen pals with some of these people because obviously, you know, back then, if you're going out of your way to, you know, use snail mail and find out where you can send things, like it's a lot harder than like shooting someone a DM on Instagram just out of out of like this clear blue sky. Yes, for sure. <laughs> All right. So as a runner, how did you progress once you switched from gymnastics to running? Um well, I mean, I like I was so serious about gymnastics, like it was I mean, it was, I think I did it about 15 hours a week or maybe more. And um, so I think there was no way I was going to be like casual about my next sport. It was hard for me to find my next sport at first. Like I I don't know, I was 15 years old and I was like done with gymnastics and needed something like it was sort of my whole life. And then I was like, what I what am I now? And I tried diving. That didn't work out because um, you have to land upside down. And that was hard. <laughs> I was used to landing on my feet. Um, and then I there was a woman locally or a girl um, at my high school who had run the Cape Cod Marathon. And there was an article about her in the paper. And I was like, oh, cool. Like, I want to do that. So I started my first summer running. I was like, I'm training for the Cape Cod Marathon. And um, I started building up my long run. Like I look at back at the training log I kept and it was like the dumbest training, like a speed work at one day, like long run the next speed work again the next day, whatever. Um, and I got up to seven, a little over 17 miles, I think. And then I was so sore. Like I had to go down the stairs on my butt and like, you know, it's just like, this is horrible. And I was finally like, you know what, I'm going to, I'm going to go out for cross country. That seems a lot easier. Um, so I went out for the cross country team and I remember at the beginning, I wasn't sure if I was going to be a sprinter or a distance runner. And there were girls at my high school who were pretty good at running. And I knew that one of the girls could run 57 or 58 seconds for a 400. And I knew that another girl could run like just under 12 minutes for the two mile. So I went to the like local elementary school track. It was like a gravel track. And I sprinted around the track as fast as I could um, to see like how fast I could do a lap. And I did it in about 90 seconds. And so I was like, okay, I guess I'm a distance runner because <laughs> I knew that the other girl ran it 30 seconds faster than I did. Um, and so I was, I was right. Um, so I went out for the high school team, um, as a sophomore and I, it was a good team that I was joining. Um, like a year later we won the state title, but, um, it, like I was, you know, I wasn't the top runner right away. I was probably like fourth or fifth on the team. Um, but it was great to have people to chase. And, um, you know, I worked really hard in high school. I had some setbacks, like I had to have wrist surgery for a gymnastics injury, um, which meant I couldn't train going into my junior year. So my senior year, I like really improved a lot because I finally got to train properly. And um, yeah, then I went on to run in college. So I need to ask, did you end up doing that marathon? No, I didn't. I was, I was just like, this is, you know, that's way too hard. So this was what, when you were like, four, so this was like 14, 15 years old when you were training for that? Yeah, I was 15. 15. So what was your, now, now as a, as a parent, like I, like I would love for my kids to like pick up running, but like whether they do or not, you know, it really doesn't matter to me. But when they were watching you switch over from gymnastics and running, and then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Cape Cod marathon, here I come. So what was their what was their reaction to this and what was kind of like how did you like how did you interpret their reaction my parents yeah um well i don't even remember having a conversation about it like i feel like i don't know whether we didn't have the conversation or if it was just like parenting was different back then and like they just kind of let me do my own thing and they didn't even know i was training for it or something but i they kind of let me do my own thing like they would let me go on a 17 mile run around town and not really ask any questions like they were I mean, I think at the time they probably just wanted me to find another sport that made me happy. And my mother had run a marathon, so I don't think anyone was like, oh, that's totally crazy. My my take was always like, if my mother can run a marathon, I can too. There you go. Now, what town did you grow up in? Like, what high school was this? Amherst High School in Western Massachusetts. Okay. All right. Now, when you were getting ready for your senior year and you're finally able to kind of do the training that you wanted to do, 
what were did you think that you were going to have running as part of your college decision making process or how did that how did that play a part ultimately in what you what you chose to do collegiately um it was definitely part of the consideration like i th- i think i was looking for good academic schools but also looking for ones that had good running programs because um i ultimately went to bowden and at the time they had the top um one of the top um women's programs for cross country in new england and actually, that's like another embarrassing thing is like I had never heard of Bowdoin until I read Joan Bonight Samuelson's autobiography. And I was like, what's that school? And so that was like, I mean, it wasn't the reason I went there, but it definitely like led me to look into the school and ultimately did go there. Well, that would have been a good reason because she still rocks the Bowdoin singlet at races. Yeah, occasionally. Yep. Now that that is that is fantastic. And that's a wonderful league, the NESCAC, and it's good and like, that's a Division three school, people who don't know, and it's one of the best D3 leagues in basically every single sport. Um, so what was it like running in college, and what were some of your thoughts in terms of what you wanted to do post-collegiately as well? Um, it was great. I mean, like, we had a, a really fun program. My college coach was, like, if if he has, one, you know, like, one thing that he would be known for, it would be, like, he just made it so crazy and so fun um and like had really good teams but it was just like he did crazy things like um like i i never got to go on this run but other people did like where he would blindfold the team drive them somewhere in the woods and then drop them off and make them make their way back to campus and this was before cell phones and he would like put up false signs along the way pointing them like in the wrong direction and stuff and i don't know he would do like all these crazy things um so it was really fun. But I also like, I went into college a little bit injured and then like got really injured. And so I, I was, you know, I ended up like transferring, transferring back, you know, spent five years in college and only ran like two of each season. And it was really a frustrating experience. Like I had, um, you know, like a surgery followed like by a year long stress fracture. Um, and so like by the end of college, I like had gotten a little bit healthy again, but I was sort of like, I had gotten to a point where I thought I was never going to be able to run well or healthy again. Like I thought maybe running was, you know, over for me. And that was like a really hard part of my life. Um, kind of like the losing gymnastics stage. Um, but I think by the end of college, there was like starting to be a little hope, like where I was pretty out of shape, but healthy again. And I think because I graduated, um, like not really having fulfilled my potential that like I really got into training after college and um, got more serious about it for a while. So did you have any specific goals um, for running either um, in college or as you were, as you were graduating? Well, um, I mean, in college, I always just wanted to be healthy and run well. And I never, I I only very briefly did that. But um, when I graduated, it was sort of like, I have these PRs from high school that like they are not going to be my PRs for life. Like they cannot be like I had, was determined to sort of run better than I had in high school, which was kind of frustrating because like by that time you should be better than you are in, were in high school. So what were the the distances that you first wanted to kind of, you know, check off the list of like, okay, this is a PR that I want to get done first. Or did you have like a plan of attack? Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I, I focused on the 5k and 10k for a lot for a long time. Like I wish I had spent more time focusing on the marathon, but 5k and 10k I took down both of those PRs eventually and like felt like okay like I, I've actually improved finally after all these years um and I like I I trained really hard during that period like I was sort of of the mind like you know I'm not an elite runner I'm not even close but like what can I do if I train not quite like an elite runner but like sort of take some of the principles that they use and and you know run a higher mileage like I was running I think I ran up to 85 miles a week consistently at some point and um which was ironic because in college I was like oh I can only run 40 miles and I still get injured um so like eventually my body came around and I realized that like, I could handle the training as long as I sort of was ready for it and you know did it more gradually and um you know eventually I did actually I did run a marathon right after college the first year after um but it was sort of like a you know just for just for fun um and yeah, and I think ultimately, like I would have been best at half marathon, marathon, but didn't run as many of those races. 
Yeah, well, it's easy to like not necessarily come to that conclusion if you felt like it would be hard for you to run more than 40 miles a week after co- you know, yeah. once college had finished up. Yeah, I mean, but ultimately I did run quite a bit, so yeah. um, I should have been well-trained for the long distances. But um, but I think also like at the time there wasn't like marathoning. I think to, right now to everybody, like marathoning is everything. And back then there was a lot more emphasis on you know, the shorter distances and there were more opportunities to race it and people cared more about that stuff. And I think the marathon has contributed greatly to the popularity of running, but it's also like taken away from the other distances a little bit. Yeah, that's definitely true. And when you, what year did you graduate college? 1998. Okay. Yeah. So that, that makes a lot of sense. So when you had finished up and you, you obviously were, you know, keeping abreast of the, the running scene, what runners at that point were you, you know, either, you know, you like to, to follow or that you viewed as people that you looked up to or, you know, what were some of the runners that you really focused on at that point in your career? Um, I don't think I really specifically focused on any one over anyone else. Um, but I, in college, I had like been, call it like when college was the first time I was introduced to the internet and um, like, you know, email for the first time, my, my first year. And there was this um, track list that you could be on at the time. Like, I don't know how I found out about it, but it was like TNF media gac.edu, Gustavus Adolphus or however you pronounce that. Um, and it was like a whole bunch of track nerds, like having email conversations, like via a listserv. And um, it's actually where I met my husband um, for the first time. We didn't, you know, nothing came of it then, but like, um, like, so there was this way of, communicating about running. And so I think I was just like keeping up with the sport through that and through other things. And um, there was like a, a website that people looked at. It was like let's run.com, but it's predecessor. And so I think I was just sort of following the sport through all of that stuff and watching it when I was on TV and still reading the magazines and stuff. So when you say, I love this. So you've basically been there for the entire evolution of how running has been covered uh, via the internet. Like you've been there like right from the start because yeah, pretty you know, much. Mid, I mean, mid to late nineties is really when the internet kind of kicked off in terms of widespread reach. And like, that's also like the exact same time when like, okay, like, you know, AOL was obviously huge in the mid, you know, early to mid nineties. But then like, you know, if you didn't have an AOL account, you couldn't get access to their content. And then there were a lot of websites that worked like that. You know, it was like the internet, but it was still siloed. So you were able to like kind of like see the, the complete evolution. So as you were, you know, digesting the, you know, the different, you know, mediums that were out there on the Internet, and you know, really engaging with them. What were some of the things that you viewed as, you know, the things that you wanted? What content what did you want more of at that time? Obviously, like even the word content isn't what you would. You know, we didn't use that word back then <laughs> to describe what we were reading. But what were some of the things that you looked at? Like, hey, like, I really enjoy this but I wish there was more of that. Like, what was, what was that feeling like? I mean, there really wasn't anything. So adding anything was like a contribution at the time. Um, I like, I can't even fully remember what it was like, but I just, I remember when I first started my website about women's running, which was called fastwomen.com. Um, I like, at first I was writing like bios about people and doing, I think I might've done some Q and A's. Um, and, like it was kind of like I was trying to make Wikipedia pages for these people before Wikipedia existed. Um, and, and then also like some putting up photos. Um, so when I first started working for New York Roadrunners in, I think 1999, um, I, they were like, you know, they knew I had taken photos before cause I had done a lot of, a, a little bit of photography in high school and college when I was injured, I would bring my film camera with manual focus, um, to, to meets and, take photos of my teammates. And, um, so when I got hired at New York Roadrunners, they were sort of like, can you, um, take photos of our weekly races and put them on the internet? And I was like, I think so. Like, um, and I kind of like had worked on my, my college's webpage, um, for the, like the cross country team and track team. And I was like, I think I remember how to update the internet. Um, and, So like, I mean, literally at the beginning of my New York Roadrunners time, I was going to the weekly races, taking my film camera, um, taking as many photos as I could, like 
running over to the one hour developing place, waiting for them to develop my film, scanning it in, like putting it, you know, putting it up on their website. And people were like, whoa, like, this is so awesome. Like, there's a photo of me from this race. So like, I do think that some of those race photography services existed at that time, but I don't think any of them were online. Um, And it was just, it was like, everything was new. So like anything you could put up there was like, you know, made a difference or like, you know, at the time, like when I started that website, it wasn't like, you know, oh, there's so much stuff. Let me pick out the the cool stuff for you. It was more like, let me find whatever there is and put it here. Oh my goodness. Like I remember that time, like I wouldn't even dream of having a race photo, like on the internet of me after a race. Like like, I thought it was like, (laughs) I thought it was a miracle, like to see the race results on coolrunning.com. I was like, holy yeah. cow, like this is amazing. I can go on the internet and see my race results. I don't have to like, yeah. you know, scavenge through a local newspaper to get them. Exactly. So, yeah, I mean, it was, it, it's hard to imagine now that like, it's like, how did we do this or how did we do that? How did we live? But, you know, it was, it was, we were used to it and, uh, you know, it's, it's changed so much that it's hard to think back to how it was. So when you started fastwomen.com, what was your experience like in terms of engaging with the individuals who visited the website? Like, did you even have an idea of like what the traffic was or like who was going on the site or was it you, or were you completely like divorced from how it was being consumed? Well, when I first started it, so I was working at New York Roadrunners, like doing a completely different job and I started it in my free time. Um, because actually the website that I mentioned that was a predecessor to let's run.com, they had put like, I think a bunch of things bothered me, but like they put up a poll, like who's going to win the NCAA mile. And then they put up like five guys names. And I was like, you didn't say the men's mile. Like they just, everything on there was assumed that it was about the men. And so I was like, okay, I can, I can add something here um, just by putting up anything. And um, I like, I started on my own. I think I could see my own like page traffic then, but then when New York Roadrunners decided that they would buy it from me and make that my job, then it went on to like the New York Roadrunners website. Um, and at that point I could, I couldn't see any of the page stats for ever after. So I like, I think like occasionally they would give me some data, but like I didn't have a lot of sense of anything, but I did like, I don't remember how, like I heard from people, I think they would email me or we had message boards as well. And I do feel like there were a bunch of people out there who like, I kind of found some running friends that way because it was sort of like, you know, like they wanted that content and this is the only place they could find it. So, um, I definitely like found some cool people that way. And a lot of them ended up writing or doing interviews for the website as well. Now that's, that is really cool. So when you were Putting that out, obviously having the platform through New York Roadrunners is huge just from a distribution standpoint because so many people that they have access to and who do races through them. But what was it like in terms of like trying to increase the, I guess, not, not access to, but just getting the name out there for your website to try to increase traffic? Like, was that something that you were intimately involved in or was it just simply content creation? I shouldn't say simply because it's a huge job. Just or was it merely just doing the content creation side and not worrying so much about trying to, you know, have as many people as possible see the site? I think that was, I don't even remember, but I think that was more like New York Roadrunners um, handled that part of it, and it was more like so. I, there was also like when they bought the site, they said we can't just do a website about women; we have to have a men's site too. So I also there was a separate site about men's running. Um, it's called mensracing.com. And, um, so all of the content for those websites was my job. So I, like, I sort of made myself a photographer. I didn't have a ton of experience, but I just went to so many races and got like a digital camera so I could could get things out faster. And, um, like I sort of decided I would be the photographer and then I did do some interviews and stuff for the site, but then I also could hire people to do that. And it's funny, like the people I hired, it's amazing. Like the lineup now is like this amazing list of people who have gone on to do really cool things in the sport. But I think because there weren't that many outlets to write for back then, like there was runner's world, but not a ton more online um, that like we got a good, a good group of people. Right. Cause that was really when people started to convert over to the online, the online site and really trying to, you know, shoot early two thousands. I mean, that's really when the conversion started happening kind of away from magazines 
and then, you know, towards the websites. Well, so many places try to have both at the same time, right? Like you saw like ESPN.com, ESPN, the magazine doing that and really trying to like keep both things and, you know, both things in check at the same time. So when you were, you know, engaging with both of these sites, you had so many things going on, obviously. What was it like for you seeing the industry change? And then also as social media started to come into vogue with Facebook, and then, you know, we, we know what's happened after that. What was that like trying to navigate not only your place on the internet, but also try to figure out how it related to the burgeoning social media world? I actually um, more or less stopped. Do, like, so I only stayed at New York Roadrunners through the end of 2005. I think I, in 2006, did some freelance stuff for them, but I was pretty much gone after 2006. Um, I did, like, after I left New York Roadrunners, I started my own website that was trying to do some of the same stuff, but like with none of the support of New York Roadrunners and like quickly was like, okay, I did it for a few years, but it was sort of like, okay, this is like all the same work and not getting paid. Um, so I did stop doing it. So I like, I kind of exited that, um, like that side of the sport before social media really came into things. Um, like I, I stuck around like through 2007, eight, maybe nine, but then like, um, but then took like a 10 year break, um, to be a college coach. So, um, I kind of like, I guess in 2000, you know, the start of 2019, maybe the end of 2018, it was sort of like, I want to try to reenter, um, this space a little bit, but I wasn't sure how. And I was also like very, I mean, I've been on social media and I've been consuming this stuff for like the, throughout the entire time, but like, it was sort of like, how do you reenter? This is a totally different space than it used to be. And like, you know, if you start something like you can't just start it and have it, you, you don't automatically get an audience cause you're the only one there like you did before. Absolutely. So what was the pull to become a coach? Like why, why make that career change? Um, so it was partially because like we had moved and my job at Roadrunners became like much more inconvenient, much like, so part, part of part way through that time, like I started working remotely for them and that was working out fine. But then we moved to the Boston area and, you know, my boss was sort of like, Oh good. Now you're closer and you can come in more often. And I was like, actually I'm farther away now. Um, but it, it, it just like, technology was changing, but the website technology wasn't changing. It just like a lot of frustrations. And I sort of got to a point where I was like, I don't even really understand why New York Roadrunners is doing this. And I think they were questioning that at times as well. Like why, what is, what is in it for them? Um, and so I just made the decision to like do something else. And I had actually, um, overlapping with that. I like for four years prior to that, I had been a high school coach and I really loved it. And I just sort of was curious what it would be like to have that, you know, be my full-time thing. So I decided to, like, when we moved to the Boston area, I decided to um, try college coaching. And being a full-time college coach is, is a tough sledding just because there aren't a lot of full-time jobs out there to be had in, you know, cross-country and track and field. So where did you end up landing? Um, so I guess I, you know, like what you said, like it's, there aren't that many jobs. And so I think a lot of it, like I kind of hopped around from place to place as my husband was going through his, like he was going to grad school and then, um, various things. And so originally I coached at my high school. That was like the absolute best coaching experience I could have had. Like it was just this amazing program with this amazing head coach who like, I don't think I fully realized it at the time. This was not my high school coach, but a friend of my high school teammate, one of my high school friend's fathers who had taken over the program. And he was, he was a college professor and he was just like the most amazing, he he just built the most amazing team culture that I've ever been a part of. And it was like, just, I don't know, like, I hope that those kids had, you know, as good of a time with that program as I did. Cause it was just, I learned so much about like just life from that experience. And so, um, when we moved to the Boston area, my husband was a grad student at Tufts. So I, um, like went to the coach there and said, you know, like, Hey, do you need any help? And so I was there for two years and then, you know, then we moved back to Amherst. So I was there for a year. I kind of just went wherever we were. So like that made it all the more difficult to find paying jobs because you don't, <laughs> you're just showing up and saying, do you have a job rather than like actually applying for an existing job? Um, so I had some amazing experiences doing that. Um, but then it wasn't until like 
2008 or so that I finally said, okay, like I have to, you know, like my job has to dictate where I go rather than, you know, wherever we are, I find a coaching job. Um, so like in 2008, I moved down to Virginia by myself for six months to be a volunteer assistant at the University of Virginia. And then like sort of after that experience, I was like, okay, I got to, this is when I have to get a job that like actually is going to pay for me to live. And so um, I just, you know, I took the best job that was available that summer um, and ended up like at a division one school in New York for a few years. Um, but ultimately like, you know, I bounced around, like I got a ton of interviews um, and like, it just, it, until I went into college coaching, I had never not gotten a job I had applied for. And then when I went into college coaching, it was suddenly like, wow, like it's so hard to get anything. Um, and I like over the years have felt better about this because I've heard interviews from like these very successful coaches who have said the same thing. Like um, when Jack Daniels was retiring from SUNY Cortland, um, which is a division three school, like they, I think there was some interview where they asked him, um, you know, like, why did you stay at Cortland all these years? And he was like, I applied to hundreds of jobs, but I never got an interview. Um, so that oh made me feel better. <laughs> like I got a lot of interviews, but I didn't get a lot of jobs. And ultimately, like in the end, I, like, I tried so hard to make college coaching work, but like, it was like, once I had kids and, you know, two of them showed up at the same time, um, like you, you think you're having one kid, then you get two, um, then you start doing the math on like, okay, this is how much it costs for childcare. This is how much my job pays. And it just like, it wasn't working out. I, you know, did one last job in the Boston area. And then it was sort of like, okay, we are not moving this family again for one of my coaching jobs. Like we have to like, just, I don't know, like I just have to move on. So, um, you know, I had some like incredible experiences coaching and I think I had like some, I mean, I, I wasn't successful every school every year, I would say, but like, I had some incredible success, um, through that time. And I worked with some amazing people. I coached some amazing people. Um, but at the end it was sort of like, I can't do this to my family anymore. No, I can relate. I coached college basketball in New England for seven years. And so I've had a very similar experience in terms of, you know, the, the pay or lack thereof. Yeah. Um, yeah. and then having to decide like, Hey, when I, and when I met my wife to be, it was kind of like, okay, Am I going to be a college basketball coach, which means I'm not going to be home on, you know, at night? You know, is that going to be yeah. something that I'm going to be okay with? And it's just one of those, never mind the money part. It's just like, it's just from a time perspective. Is this going to be something that I'm going to be able to handle? And so as a uh, former college coach and, you know, New England coaching nerd, what 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 uh, what schools in New York and um, Boston or Massachusetts did you finish up at? Let's see. Um, I went Tufts, Amherst, Virginia. Siena, um, which is a big basketball school, but not a big running school. Um, and then but, but you put well, a beautiful area up there. Yeah. Um, that's where my kids were born. And then, um, and then finished off at Wellesley college, which was a cool experience because, um, the head coach who was in his last year, um, was John Babington, who had been an Olympic coach and coached Lynn Jennings to like world cross country title and stuff. So it was really cool to, yeah, I actually like had more fun sometimes as an assistant coach. Cause it was like, that meant you always got to be coaching with someone else. Um, so you got to like sort of experience the all, like the whole experience of the season from the coach's side with somebody else rather than being the only coach. And then like, you know, experiencing it with the team, but their experience is very different. Right. So how did your views on running um, and just the running scene change or evolve from your time as a coach? Um, I don't know. I mean, I think like it's, it's, I don't know, like I can look back at the entirety of the experience and sort of, um, think, you know, I learned certain things about how to train people, but I think a lot of what I learned was really like how to build teams. And that's what I loved most about coaching. Like, and that's what I learned from that first experience, um, coaching high school with that amazing coach. Like just, if you can build the right team environment, like the kids will, you know, run through a brick wall for you and for their teammates. And it just like, I don't know. I think that coaches have so much power on, especially on college campuses because they end up being the adults that the kids tend to know the best on campus because they're spending almost every day with them. They're doing you know that for all four years and you don't do that with any professor or your advisor or anything like that. 
So I think you have so much power to do good and you have so much power to, you know, like really not do good if you, if that's, you know, if you're not, you're not doing the right things. Um, so I think, I don't know, I think some of it was frustrating. It was sort of like, um, you know, I guess when you're like, when you're not getting the jobs, but then you're also seeing other people do things that probably shouldn't, you know, they shouldn't be able to keep the jobs. Um, that was a little tough, but I think it also like has informed a lot of my views now. And then also like, I have strong feelings about, you know, eating disorders and stuff like that. And some of that comes from, um, you know, seeing them and sometimes not always handling them well, or, you know, being told to like, you know, so like the athletic trainers will handle this and, but then it doesn't happen. Um, so I think I, I've just sort of, um, I don't know. I think at the time, like I wouldn't have been able to put thoughts together, but now like having stepped away from it, I, you know, as I started to write the newsletter, I realized that I had some strong, strong feelings about certain things. Yeah, I think, you know, the eating disorder piece, and it's something that we've touched on in this podcast uh, several times over the past two years, uh, specifically in college as well, just because that's oftentimes is, um, if not, you know, you know, the genesis of a love of it for so many people who I've been who have interviewed on this show. Um, but just, you know, where, where sometimes that starts to escalate there, uh, for whatever reason, I'm sure there's a myriad of them. With that being said, what else, you know, but I mean, you had, you know, your own, you know, difficult college experience regarding running, right? You had constant injuries, you transferred to and from the school that you ended up at. So what was that like for you just witnessing the college athlete experience from, from the other side in terms of, you know, being able to counsel runners and student athletes on, you know, kind of like taking the, the long-term approach versus, you know, especially for someone who's in that age group, constantly focusing on the short term. Yeah. I mean, it's hard to say, like I, there's just been, there were so many different cases. And I think in certain programs, because I was often the assistant coach, like I didn't always have the power over the situation to be able to handle it. Or like, because of a certain policies at certain schools, I didn't always feel like I um, could do the right thing. And then I, like you see, it's so tempting for college coaches to let an athlete who's running well, keep running like, it's like, you don't do anything until it all falls apart. But if you, um, you know, cause sometimes it does go well for a period and that's really frightening. And I think, um, it is, you know, it's a tough thing to watch, but I think also there's like so much denial. I think we know a lot more now than we did then too. I think, um, with information sharing, you know, through social media, through the internet, like, I mean, the internet existed then, but like, there just wasn't as much talk about it. And I think now we have better resources to point people to. Cause like even the books that were published back then, like, you know, I just, I remember one elite athlete had a book about how to eat and it was like, now I look back and I'm like, that was terrible advice. And hopefully no one read that book. And I'm sure they did though. And now we have like, you know, Shalane Flanagan and Elise Kopecky, like with their cookbooks and I don't know, just things that you can point people to and sort of be more proactive about it in the first place. Whereas um, I think it, it was always an awkward subject. Like my college coach would address it with the team, but everyone was always like, oh, that's so awkward. And like, I don't know. And I think that I used to sort of worry that like maybe an eating disorder hadn't crossed someone's mind, but now it will because we're talking about it. Um, but now I think like, I don't know having stepped away from it for a while and, um, you know, just have like with more knowledge, I think I could handle it much better now, but it is just a tricky thing. And especially when the person is in denial. Um, and yeah. And also like coaches aren't necessarily the people to, um, to help them deal with it, but it's sort of like the coach can be the first line of, you know, even noticing. Yeah, because it gets a tricky situation, like you said, especially if someone's in denial about it and you want to protect them. It's also hard because like they're not going to be they're not going to want to, you know, oftentimes with those situations that like someone has to be ready to change or ready to like, you know, embrace the situation for what it is in order to change. So like, how do you set up the dominoes for that to happen? Right. Especially if they're in denial. And like you said, they're running well. Like there has to be certain steps that, that have to be taken. And like, does the person just shut down and leave? And then all of a sudden it was just all for naught anyway. And now you've lost any influence that you had in the first place. 
to say yeah. nothing of like to nothing of like a coach who was, you know, maybe thinking about, hey, we have a chance to win, you know, go to the NCAAs this year and this person's running well and I don't know exactly what's going on, but let's just kind of go with it. Yeah. And I think more often it was sort of like, does that person have any news or like you weren't really sure because you weren't necessarily like in the dining hall with them all the time. But like there was, I think there were probably more issues than we realized at the time. Um, but I think some of it is just like, I think now college campuses are more likely to be well-equipped to handle this. Um, whereas even 10 years ago, like they weren't um, necessarily like, I don't know, like they thought they were equipped to handle it, but they didn't, you know, like then you send them to this like male athletic trainer who doesn't know how to talk about that stuff at all. And like, and then it's, you know, more destructive than constructive. And um, I think I imagine like from some of what I've heard, I think that a lot more schools are sort of like have better resources around this now. Um, But I think when I, you know, like when I was in college, like it was certainly talked about, but like, I think the knowledge was just not at all where it is now. So what made you get back into doing fast women? Um, so I, when I quit college coaching in 2013, um, I was sort of like, Oh great. Now, like, what do I do with my life? And I, I think I like reached out to all sorts of people and sort of like, you know, does anyone have a job? And um, like the hard thing about what I've always done is like, there's not usually a written job that exists for it. Um, like it starts, a lot of it has been creating my own job, but um, I reached out to Scott Douglas and at some point he got back to me and he was like, you know, there's this job writing for runner's world that you can take on. So I was really um, thankful for a stretch of years to, to write for runner's world. And um I did that more consistently through like 2016. I still do one weekly assignment for them, but it's not writing. It's more researching. And um, so I think like I did that for a stretch. I, you know, pretended to be a writer. (laughs) I don't really like that's not something I really set out to do. But like um, and then I but I had to step away from a lot of that for like health reasons, lifestyle reasons. Like so I kind of like at some point, like just took everything off my plate. And so in the last couple of years, I've been sort of like, okay, what? can I handle with the time that I do have? Um, Cause at some point it became clear between my husband and me that like we couldn't both have full-time jobs. Um, and so, you know, when that becomes like, it's, you know, progressive and, you know, like, you know, equal as we want to be like when that you make that decision, the person who makes more money gets to keep their job. So uh, I, d- I was not that person. So um, I've sort of been like the Wait, runner's world running, working at runner's world didn't make you the breadwinner. <laughs> no, surprisingly not. And it's funny, like when I first <laughs> when I first met him, he was working at Runner's World. Um, and like he left to go into like, you know, computer that's why he was in grad school for a stretch. Like he was getting a computer science degree, which, you know, does pay you better than the running industry more often than not. Um, but so I like had for a couple of years I've sort of been like, How am I gonna like, you know, make a living? How am I gonna get back into this? And I'm still trying to answer that question. I have not at all figured that out yet. Um, but I, um, just, I, like, I talked to some people, my, um, editor from runner's world, like she, she became my editor at some point, Sarah Lorge Butler had been encouraging me to write a newsletter for like a year. Um, I reached out to Mario Fraioli and who had written for my websites way back when. And, um, you know, like I, cause I knew he had a newsletter, but also I knew he had a coaching business. Cause I was like, do I want to do that? Do I want to do a website? Um, I don't think I was considering a newsletter at that point. But he said something helpful that was like, you don't have, I was thinking I had to do a website or something. And that seemed like too big, um, too much work. And also like, you can't really make a dent with one person. Um, And he said something like, you you know, you don't have to be for everyone. Like you can, it's okay to like do something very specific that's not meant to please everybody. And I think that was really helpful advice. And then um, I, like I, last fall, I sort of like re, um, I had a, I had already saved the fast woman Twitter handle and I started tweeting again. And I think I had like 200 followers. Like I had last tweeted from it in like 2012. Um, So I I guess that bringing that back had crossed my mind at some point in 2012. Um, But I like, I was tweeting from that account, but I like didn't really have any followers and haven't really worked on developing a following in any way over the years. So it was like starting from nothing. And um, 
but then like, I, I don't know, after I had those conversations and I just like, I didn't really put any thought into it. I was like, I think me deciding I was going to do a newsletter, like to me, starting it was about one week. And I was just like, and Sarah was like, you might, you might want to get a few issues ready first. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm publishing. So I just did. <laughs> and I didn't even know like what it was going to be or like the first newsletter took me like an hour. And I thought that was how it was always going to be. But, um, each week I'm sort of like, Oh no, but I can't leave this out or that out. And so like each week I'm like, this is going to be, it needs to be much shorter. And then each week it's like eight pages long. So (laughs) you put so much into each newsletter, Allison, I look at these things and I think, first of all, like you do a great job. So obviously like, I'm just, you know, so ecstatic just to read all of the information on there. Like, I think that I keep abreast of what's happening and running. And every week I read, I'm like, shoot, I didn't know that. Or like, oh, I didn't see that article. But like the initial reaction when I get it is like, this thing is huge. Like, yeah. this must have taken so long. Well, I, I think Not it, only like, to just like type it out. I think just, it's like, the mental energy. <laughs> yeah, I feel bad because I like I don't mean to like record make people you know like I, intellectually i know that a newsletter should not be that long um so I, like you know i'm sure there are like if you took a class about how to write a newsletter this would not be it but um but it's just sort of like by the time i said all the things that i think should be said this week and and maybe ultimately like it will be shorter or it will be like a different you know format or maybe i'll you know do something more frequently so that it doesn't need to be so long i don't know um i haven't you know, I just do it and I try not to think about it too much and maybe I will revamp it all at some point. But I also feel like, like when I first started doing coverage of the sport, it was sort of like you're finding everything that exists. Um, and now it's just like sort of the opposite thing where like there might've been a sweet spot somewhere on the internet where like there was like good content and like a manageable amount. But now I think it's become this, like, there's just so much to consume that, it's you can't possibly see everything. And I'm sure I'm still missing things. But um, but by focusing on a specific, you know, topic, women's elite distance running, like I can catch more than if I try to follow like the men's side too, or whatever. And I just I just feel like these um, there's still like just a little bit more of a male bias in terms of who has chosen to like, create these websites um, that focus on the sport and um, it's just a, a geeky, like there aren't that as many, there, I mean, you know, like I'm trying to find them now, but there aren't as many women or female running geeks. Um, and there, there are more guys. So there's more, you know, guys writing about the sport, more guys starting these websites. And so sometimes I think they miss stuff. So I think that was my goal was to make sure that like this stuff got attention to Like, I don't think, I think women's running is getting a lot more attention than it used to, but I think people still aren't necessarily fans. And I want to, if people want, I don't want to force anyone to become a fan. Like, you know, don't read the newsletter if you, don't, if you don't care about this stuff. But at the same time, like, if you want to be a fan, like I want to make it a little bit easier. Oh no, I love it. I love the length. I love that it's so much because it's not just like, you know, it's not a listicle. It's not like, here's 20 articles, read them if you want. Like you provide like these really insightful synopses each time you, you know, you list an article or a topic or you combine articles and do a summary, say, hey, this is a topic that's come up here, are a couple articles that work well. I think you do a great job of curating all of this stuff. And I, I'm, I'm delighted that you include so much in there because, like you said, like if someone doesn't like it, they're not going to listen to it. They're not going to read it anyway. But, you know, it's, it's for the diehard fans. That's the point. And I think it's great how much you include because the diehard fan, all they want is more. And I think that that's like, that can get lost with things like you hear so often that like, Hey, attention spans are down, like keep videos to under seven seconds. And just like yeah. this whole, this whole idea of like people's attention spans are down and we can prove it. But like at the same time, like how many times have you heard about someone just like sitting in front of Netflix for five hours, binge watching <laughs> something. It's, it's not that attentions are down. It's that people have more choices. So if they're like, Hey, if this stinks, I'm just going to switch to something else. But if it's good, I can stay here all day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's why the, you know, you don't have to be for everyone advice from Mario was helpful because it was sort of like, oh, I'm going to take on the topic of women's running. And like, sometimes I see articles and I'm like, you know what, like that doesn't like, that's an interesting article, but that doesn't quite, you know, like that's not my focus. Like, so, you know, it's just, um, I'm, I like, I don't know. Sometimes I'm like, am I wasting people's time by linking to too many things? But then I'm also like, you know what? They can just skip it, skim, you know, like 
scroll right by if they want to. There you go. And I'll tell you what, it, it really worked out well when you launched this in conjunction with all the work that Lindsay Krauss and her team were doing um, regarding the pregnancy issues at Nike and basically you know, the, the broader spectrum of insight into into that culture and contracts and women's athletics generally, as well as women's running. And I felt like those two things in concert with each other, you know, really helped amplify not only the issues, but the people who were covering the issues. Yeah. And it's, uh, you know, it was nice that this has been an exciting year for women's running. So plenty of stuff to cover. Um, but it's interesting, like when you're when, like almost 100% dependent on other people to produce the content, like I have no idea what next next week's newsletter is going to be about. It's sort of just like, here's what other people came up with. So, um, you know, I think I, I did when I contemplated like making a website instead, I thought I can only produce so much content. And I actually picked a newsletter because I was like, that doesn't require any work. <laughs> um, ironically. Jokes on you. <laughs> Jokes on you, Allison. You're working all the time now. But I mean, I even thought like, okay, podcast, you have to line up a guest or like whatever, like that, that, that depends on someone else. But this was sort of like, okay, I can just do this whether or not like I talk to anyone in a given week. So um, yeah, it actually, I can make anything lots of work if I want though. No, but I tell you what, it's, it's one thing, like you're right. Like as a curator, you're not producing the content, you're creating the content. But I think that your myriad of experiences as an athlete, coach, and within the communications industry provide you with the kind of background to kind of you know sift through a lot of this stuff and determine like what is a good piece, what isn't a good piece, and what are issues that are relevant and things like that. Like it's not as if you tried to do this at 22. And, yeah. you know, just, you know, basically say you were 22 right now, right? In terms of like the, the technology piece, like you wouldn't be able to produce fast women newsletter the way you do now, just because of the experiences that you've had that have, you know, provided you, I'm sure the insight to, you know, just do something that really, you know, touches a lot of people because, hey, like I, I see it every single day, people commenting on your newsletters, like it's having a huge impact and what is that like for you to see people engaging with your work in that way? It's cool. I mean, I like I had no idea how people would receive this. I, you know, I figured there would be and it's been actually really cool to find have people get in touch who are like, oh, I used to read your website back, you know, back in the day. And I'm like, oh, you're you're like reuniting with people sort of. Um, but it is, you know, like, I don't, I don't know. It's been really nice to sort of like get back into the running industry. Cause I do feel like I kind of disappeared for 10 years there. And it's just, um, you know, it's fun to like, um, have a reason to follow it more closely. Cause I like, I kind of worry sometimes like, like, am I, is this too obsessive? But, but I also like took 10 years off there. So like, I'm like, okay, I can, I can back off if I need to. Um, and you know, it's just, I don't know, it's been really fun to like get involved again. And what's it like for you trying to determine how much you're going to include regarding like different segmentations within the sports industry? Like say like you have certain races that you're like, hey, this happened, right? Say Peyton Jordan Classic happens, right? You want to cover it. Or, you know, we're about to hit marathon season. There's going to be a ton of races that you obviously want to be, you know, covering and, you know, getting a really good glimpse into what people are doing versus just covering you know, the sports industry at large, like, again, like you know, the whole Nike contractual issue or social justice issues. Do you have, you know, certain ways that you approach what to include or what topics to include or not include? Um, I think most of it comes down to like what I'm interested in. Um, there, I, the one thing I've struggled with is like ultra running, um, because that isn't something that I ever covered before. So, or like not maybe a tiny bit, but not really, um, and also ultra running was not at all really big when I was covering the sport before. Um, so it's become a much more mainstream thing than it used to be. Um, so like my ultra running knowledge is way behind my other running knowledge. And so some of it, like I, I still have people reaching out and being like, well, why didn't you include that? And I don't know. I think, I think um, maybe I will refine it over time, but I think it is mostly what I'm interested in. Um, you know, some of it, like I, I try to focus on the U S um, you know, I do include other runners from other countries, but I'm not going to like dive as deeply into Canadian running or, you know, Kenyan running or whatever. But um, I sort of have like 
higher standards for if you're an international runner, you're going to be included if like this affects, you know, a wider audience. But if it's just, you know, or if you are adding something to the conversation, like the bigger conversation, um, the larger topics in women's running. But um, I don't know, like I should probably have like more (laughs) concrete um, thoughts in my head about that. But I, it just sort of like, these are the things that interest me this week. And sometimes it's hard for me to rank order them (laughs) at the top. Like I'm like, which one of these is most important like who who wins you know who gets the the top spot but um but i think a lot of the time it's pretty clear like what like when the the new york times like when lindsey krauss's reporting came out you know sarah lord butler and i were, like kept being like okay like this week you know that won't be the top issue but then like something else would happen where we're like okay it's back at the top of the newsletter this week um and yeah but it is kind of interesting to try to like be like you know how do how do these feats rank relatively? And I've had somebody say like I'd like to hear more about masters running, um, but yeah, the the main focus is probably more on the the mainstream running events like the the Olymp- the things that you can go to the Olympics and World Championships for in you know under the IAAF umbrella. Um, and I mean, you know, ultra running is part of that, but not as you know, like kind of like where the money is in the sport because I think that's still where the the most competition is. So when you're going through all the different websites and all and basically every single media outlet that covers running, what gets you really excited? Either people, topics, races, writers, what what really like gets you like super duper fired up to read, <laughs> um, you know, anything that's out there? Um, I mean, I, there's certain like podcasts that I get excited to see, to listen to an episode, like if it's just a good guest that we don't hear from that much or something. Um and then I think anytime someone's talking about a topic that people haven't talked about much before, that's really interesting. So um, there's just been more of that recently. Um, and then I don't know, like over time, I think like because I consume so much of it, some of them like some of it, I get less like there's probably stuff that other people would be interested in seeing, but I um, don't include it because I'm like, oh, another article about that. But um, I really I don't know. I mean, even like I ended up writing about like people losing bladder control during races this week. And, um, you know, that wasn't something I thought I would write about, but then like, because Emily Enfeld brought it up, like it, it was interesting to me because then I'm hearing so many people saying, Oh yeah, like that. Me too. Me too. Me too. And I think like, okay, clearly this is an issue that we should be talking about more. And I also feel like, um, you know, I got more feedback on that this week. And so it'll probably go in next week's newsletter. So I like it whenever it creates more conversation as well. And you've been able to, you know, jump through different career cycles here that have all been tied to things that you're passionate about in one way or another. So if you were to give advice to somebody at at any age who wanted to do something professionally that centered on things that they really cared about, what would some, what would be some of the advice that you would give them? Um, I mean, it it depends on what, what that thing is, but, um, I think that, I don't know. I I just remember like growing up, my parents used to give me a hard time about like being so into my sports and like, I mean, they were very supportive, but at the same time, like, you know, in elementary school, like the teacher, the parent teacher conference, they said like, Allison is, you know, like too into gymnastics. And if we say you have to report on a country, she'll pick a country because of their gymnastics, you know, like Romania, because they have good gymnasts or whatever. And like, she needs to branch out more. And, and like, I think people throughout my life gave me a hard time about like being too into that. And then my mother would always say like, oh, joke's on me because, you know, you found a career in this. And um, so I think it's like sometimes the things that you're just into on the side can, you know, become the things that, you know, like how you make your living. Um, but then also like if if it's like something like the stuff that I've done, it's like also have a backup plan because <laughs> there's not, you know, like there's not always a paying job for that. But I think now more than ever, there are jobs as long as you're like willing to move there's some great jobs and like where i started out new york roadrunners like that's a huge employer for the sport and um and there are just more and more companies now doing stuff in that space um but i think you know don't don't feel bad about being into something it could become you know your your strength someday and it's hard to know what what jobs will be out there in the future right yeah. i mean like when you graduate from Bowdoin. 
It's not like you would be like, oh, you know what? No, it's going to be hot newsletters. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm definitely going to get in a newsletter. That's still to be determined. Um, but yeah. Like, right. Or even like, or any of this stuff. This is like, you know, it, it's so hard to predict what, like, what jobs out there will even be tied to your passions. Never mind, like, what your passions are. Yeah, exactly. And like, it's, it's always evolving. And I think you have to, like, you have to change. But I think what I see now is like, there are more people making their living with like these sort of passion product projects that like that didn't happen as much back then. Like a lot of the people when I was working for Roadrunners and doing my websites, like I always knew I was one of the fortunate people who actually got a salary for doing that. Whereas like a lot of the people at the meets were just doing it like, you know, on their own time and like trying to sell their work after the fact, but um, especially with the photographers. And um, it was always like, you know, I knew how lucky I was and, but yeah, I mean, I think, you know, have a, have a more conventional backup plan, but, uh, but you never know what might and be willing to adapt, but like, you never know what might work out. Yeah, exactly. And then, um, before we get going, just how can people, um, connect with you on not only on the newsletter side of things, but also through, uh, Patreon? Um, well, I mean, I think the number one thing is if you're interested, you can subscribe to the newsletter. Um, there is a website fast-women.org which I don't update for anything else but you can subscribe there and um I uh you know like I I'm most active on Twitter um so people can go there and then like the newsletter itself has a link to the Patreon page um so you know you'll you'll if you're interested in the newsletter you might be you know moved to contribute but if you're not interested in the newsletter then <laughs> you can you know don't worry about the Patreon no, I, I would assume if someone's not interested in the newsletter, they're probably not going to support you on Patreon. Unless but I just want to be nice. <laughs> right. There you go. But I will say, if you are if you are subscribing to the newsletter, um, definitely support on Patreon because, hey, people like you, like this is people get this the newsletter for free and it's important to support. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Allison. This has been so enlightening to learn more about the person who's doing so much good work within the running space. So thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. And thank you for all the good work you're doing in the sport. Allison, thank you again for coming on the show. This was just such a blast as always. Oh my goodness. Just these guests one after another. I just, I'm just so privileged to talk to all of these people, Allison included. So thank you, Allison. Thank you to Ragnar Relays. Thank you to Megaton Coffee. And thank you to Tune Up CBD. I couldn't do this podcast without you. And I'm just so grateful because I also, especially with Megaton Coffee and Tune Up CBD, I consume you every day and I can't wait to run a Ragnar race. Everyone who's done it. Boy, they make me jealous when they post about it. That's for sure. Thank you so much for rating, for reviewing this podcast. If you haven't done so already, it would be greatly appreciated if you did. Also, thank you for subscribing. And make sure you check out the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast as well. That's the other podcast we got going on the Rambling Runner podcast network. August has kind of been a little bit slower month for the Road to the Olympic Trials podcast because most people aren't racing this month. It's kind of a down period. A lot of people are just kind of starting their build for their fall marathon. And we're going to be picking it back up to two episodes a week very shortly. So if you're not subscribed over there, head on over before it's too late. Now, I mean, it won't be too late, but you know, you're, you're going to want, you want to keep abreast of what's going on. So just subscribe. So you're ready to roll. So thank you so much for listening and happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to Meta P for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah. Enterprising in my surroundings, I'm finding the quietest estates these days. This representation of storm brewing, amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change. I'm trying to show this industry I got.